Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday. It's actually not Monday when we're recording this, but it's Monday for you, and we're ready to go. We got Carney the Mailbot here. Rob, would you like to jump right in with this email from Samara? Sure. This one is an email responding to a Vault episode. So it's actually a response to an episode that published like the, the year prior. But it has to do with the Sarlacc uh, episode that we did, where we talked about the Sarlacc from Star Wars and some uh, things in the natural world that, uh, that line up with it. So uh, Samara writes, hello, Robert and Joe. I've only recently been introduced to your wonderful podcast. And over the past year, the nexus at which my art, theology, and science synapses intersect has lit up like a Christmas tree. Your recent replay of the Sarlacc episode was fabulous, but I was a little surprised you didn't deep dive into the conundrum that has confused and horrified me since childhood. How could a living organism with an average lifespan be kept alive long enough to endure the suffering of being slowly digested over a thousand years? Uh, I now wonder if I had taken this too literally, although a recent pandemic-inspired reviewing of World War Z had me asking the same question. How could a zombie host organism remain without food for so long or bleed out from injuries and simply not expire? Surely if the host starves or sustains organ damage, the zombie does too? I'm aware of organisms such as uh, tardigrades that are uh, preternaturally resilient and long-living, but I am yet to hear of mammals or any creature within the animal kingdom being held in suspended animation due to a virus. I am, however, very happy to put uh, overthinking uh, it to one side and enjoy all things unanswerable for the sheer entertainment value. Thanks for continuing to delve into the weirdness with such robust research and a commitment to intrigue. Warmest regards, Samara. Well, this is funny because I thought we did talk about this, but maybe we talked about it off mic. The mm. confusion. I, I remember thinking when I when I was a kid, you slowly digested over a thousand years. The implication is that somehow it makes you live for a thousand years. And I was like, well, what if we could harness the Sarlacc technology, the, like whatever the Sarlacc does to extend your lifespan, but without the digestion part? Mm, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess the different ways of interpreting it, you could say, well, okay, it's for one thing, you could say it's a legend. It's a local legend about an organism. So it doesn't actually digest you for a thousand years, uh, though perhaps its digestive system does take a long time, um, but you're not going to be alive through all of it. Or you could go in the other direction, you know, where uh, uh, it will feel like it takes a thousand years because it'll be so painful. Oh, uh, but that's then again, true. I'm not sure uh, whose testimony that is uh, relying on. I mean... Uh, I guess some people do make their way out. We we know of at least one that did. But uh, then again, it is Star Wars. It is uh, a, a galaxy far, far away. So perhaps there is some uh, reason and some uh, way that uh, an organism is kept alive inside the uh, you know digestive process of this vast creature. Yeah. The Sarlacc uses the force to keep you alive for a thousand years while it digests you. Anyway, I, somebody follow up on that. Get get one of those life extension gurus down down in there. See what's going on. Well, you know, it's in, you, what you said is not impossible, right? If uh, <laughs> if if you find um, midichlorians in all beings, and it's just you know the higher higher rates that produce uh, uh, you know, force sensitive individuals. Then I don't know. There could be something unique going on inside the sarlacc. You know, maybe if it swallows you and you're force sensitive, or maybe there's yeah, who knows? Maybe there's some sort of a um, 
you know, a process by which uh, uh, these tiny organisms are, are themselves digest in the, digested in the sarlacc? I don't know. Okay, maybe we should go on to this next message that is also a, a straggler about an older episode. This was about the episode on invented words. This comes from Chris. Chris says, hi, Robert and Joe, longtime listener from Australia here. This is a bit of a throwback, but I wanted to contact you about your episode on invented words. In the episode, you suggested that the word selfie was merely the result of a creative Australian on the Internet. But I think there is more to it than that. In Australia, we regularly add on to the ends of words either an E or an O. For example, Tradespeople, plumbers, landscapers, etc., are often referred to as tradies. Taking a sick day is referred to as chucking a sickie. Uh, and executing a U-turn while driving is referred to as doing a U-E. Uh, we have that last one, at least here in the United States. Uh, but then Chris goes on. A cigarette or tea break is a smoko. A rough or uncouth person is a darrow from derelict. And a service station or gas station is a servo. Ha. These are just a few examples among many, many others. Sometimes it's most appropriate to add an O and other times an E, but I'm not a linguist, so I couldn't explain why. All I can say is that if I had to add to the end of the word self, it would be with an E. So the invention of the selfie may actually just be the result of a language convention uh, of spoken Australian English. Many thanks for all your great work. Chris. Uh, P.S. I'm currently working on a study of invertebrate and vegetation recovery after bushfire. It means lots of time spent on a microscope counting ants and sorting them into subfamilies. Uh, and I think he's referring to you here, Rob. Your son may enjoy the subfamily Mermesiani. Hmm. I, I hope I said that right. It's M-Y-R-M-E-C-I-I-N-A-E. Big bloody mandibles. You can't go wrong. Chris. Oh, yeah, that, that's right up his alley. He's super into ants right now. Now, I thought we – this is yet another one where I have a memory of us talking about this feature of Australian English, like the adding an E to the end – an E sound to the end of things. I think it's usually spelled with an I-E. Uh, Chris hmm. did spell it that way in the email. Uh, did this not come up in the episode? Uh, I, I don't remember. I remember <laughs> – I vaguely remember us doing this episode, and I remember there being some source or sources we were looking at that were – do, that had examined the history of selfie and mm. tried to find some sort of an answer for it. And, and yeah, it was somehow traced to Australia. But yeah, it's been a while since I, I listened to that one. I do remember thinking that the earliest written example of it anybody could find was an internet comment, yeah. like a forum post, which is always an embarrassing origin for a word. <laughs> but then again, yeah, it makes sense that it would be be uh, connected to this, just the, 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 the Australian usage. Um this also reminds me of, uh, and this is not something that I think was a comment, commentary on any actual, uh, you, know, li, you know, linguistic um, or slang tendency, but just for the um, you know, the style of writing the skit. Uh, there's the Key and Peele skit about um, action movies where the two uh, chauffeurs talking about uh, Liam Neeson movies, mm -hmm. and they refer to him as Liam Neesons. And mm -hmm. I saw a bit with Key and Peele where they were talking about like the rule for writing the sketch. Uh, for f subsequent sketches was that if an actor's name ends in an S, you take the S off. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it doesn't end in an S, you add the S. So thus you get like um, uh, Bruce uh, Willie, Bruce Willie and yeah. uh, Liam Neeson's, et cetera. 
It's funny how in reality we don't usually need to have the rules for language conventions like that spelled out. We just get it intuitively, you know, like this is talking about. You just know it either ends in the E sound or the O sound, but you couldn't explain why. Yeah, generally these things just emerge. They're not constructed so much. Oh, wait a minute. I know the earliest example uh, that the broader world became aware of, right? It's got to be throw a shrimp on the Barbie. Barbie means barbecue. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Jonathan on the subject of halos. Joe and Rob, I was wondering if you ever came across this theory in your research of halos. I once read a suggestion that the concept originated in ancient times when round plates were placed over the heads of uh, statuary of important persons to protect them from being defiled by bird droppings. (laughs) I love the possibility that such an ethereal symbol would have such a base origin. Uh, Jonathan, our next piece of listener mail addresses this very idea, so hang tight. And they continue quickly regarding auras. I was reminded of an essay by Aldous Huxley where he asserts that, quote, brilliantly illuminated by preternatural light, inwardly glowing images of bright and purple color exist in the mind at large. Of course, that's a, a whole tangent, but it adds a slightly different view of why we may be so attracted by anything that seems to glow of itself best, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, I, I looked up the link you sent about uh, about this essay by Huxley. So th- this actually comes from a, a summary and a review of Huxley by Paul Zucker, and I found the original. And so, yeah, he, he's talking about this book of Huxley's where uh, Huxley is doing sort of a, a scientific read on art criticism that involves, of course, a lot of ideas about uh, mysticism and, and psychedelic experiences and stuff like that. Um, but I also came across this interesting paragraph of, of Zucker summarizing Huxley's ideas, quote, the problem is actually whether men began to prize gems to grind pebbles because they wanted to reflect the other world as far as possible in their work or described that other world in terms of jewels, etc., because they had experienced their beautifying effects in daily life, is the transporting power of fireworks, of an illumination, of uh, all kinds of other glamorous spectacles and pageantries, based on the feeling of an attenuated echo of the visionary world, or does it merely represent a satisfaction of a visual sense, Huxley firmly believes in the first explanation. So they're in, interrogating the idea of whether like uh, glimmers of light and shiny objects, whether that is a sort of natural part of just what the brain does when it's having a, a mystical or psychedelic or visionary experience inwardly. And then do, do we seek out, you know, gold and rubies because that recreates for our eyes the experiences that we have in our minds when we see visions, you know, just what emerges naturally from the neurons firing in the right way or or is it that we have visions like that because we know that gold and jewels and the sun glint in that way in the real world? Yeah, that's a great contemplation. I mean, I guess one is tempted to take the middle ground and say that these these two things feed into each other. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's my take. Okay, anyway, uh, this next message comes from Scott, and it picks up on the first thing that Jonathan mentioned. Hi, Robin Joe, longtime listener here with either a potential insight or at least an amusing digression on halos after listening to your part one episode thereon. When I first went to the Parthenon Museum in Athens a few years ago, I read about how vertical holes in the back of the neck of many statues of divine beings supported a meniscus, plural meniscoi, 
a crescent-shaped metal piece hovering over the statue, which functioned to keep birds from sitting on the head and pooping on it, at least according to a reference in The Birds by Aristophanes. And that's an ancient Greek uh, satirical play. Uh, There were indeed many such holes in statues on display, but apparently no surviving meniscoi, perhaps because later generations stole and melted down the metal for some other purpose. This fact startled me because it seemed there was an obvious connection with halos. What if Greek statues originally had meniscoi in order to protect their heads from bird poop, but this functional design gradually began to be associated with divinity, only later to enter painting and other forms? Of course, halos or other kinds of glows exist in iconographies of other cultures and perhaps predated meniscoi, but it is still possible that meniscoi influenced the history of halos in other artwork. There's controversy about meniscoi. At least one modern scholar doubts they even existed, and perhaps Aristophanes was making some kind of joke we can no longer quite understand, and Scott supplies a link here. Uh, It's also possible that meniscoi were intended to be supernatural halos, and Aristophanes was joking about their function when he knew full well they weren't there to keep birds off the heads, or perhaps this was only a secondary fortuitous function. But I remain surprised that, at least as far as I can tell, there is little or no discussion in the scholarly literature about the relationship between meniscoi and halos. Perhaps you can either find some and enlighten me, or by pointing to this gap in art history, encourage some of your listeners with the relevant skills to explore this connection, Scott. Uh, Well, Scott, this is a great email, yeah, and a really great idea. I I did not come across this in my Halo research, and, and this is really interesting. It, it, it also raises a great question about, like, you know, the interpretation of comedy and satire mm-hmm. uh, from the past and from other cultures, you know. Um, not that that'll necessarily be the, the case in the future, I guess. There's just so much more material to go on. But, but you know, if we were to play that game of saying, what if uh, future aliens or future civilizations were to look back and they only had this one bit of stand-up comedy to go on? Or what if they had only 30 minutes of Monty Python sketches to go on in order to try and understand what what life in the uh, the 20th century was like? You know, how would they begin to uh, tease that apart? Because take, take, for instance, say the Ministry of Funny Walks, you mm-hmm. know, that is an outrageous example of, <laughs> that's an outrageous skit that is not representing anything that literally exists, existed in the world, but it is a uh, ridiculous satire of, of some of the, uh, the, the things that we do engage in, uh, you know, both in terms mm-hmm. of... Um, of, uh, you know, governmental offices and so forth. And then also, you know, ridiculous, uh, you know, marching steps that are, that are common in, uh, you know, various, uh, you know, armed forces displays and so forth. Well, I'd say there's another big issue with comedy uh, that's difficult to in- interpret across time because you can lose perspective across time as to what about it is supposed to be funny, even if you know it's supposed to be funny. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the Monty Python sketch about the dead parrot. Now, that's funny to us just because it is an absurd situation. And a lot of Monty Python skits are like that. They're not satirizing any particular thing that happens in the real world. It's just absurd. But you can and imagine a future historian looking at that skit and saying, like, was this a problem in the 20th century? Were there many pet shops in Britain that were selling people dead pets? And this is a this is a joke about how common this is. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this before, um, you know, growing up watching Mystery Science Theater 3000. I don't know if I've had this. Com- I think we've had this conversation where there are jokes on MST3K that I've been laughing about 
my entire life. And I still don't necessarily know what they are about in all cases. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be a re- reference to some sort of uh, television show that mm-hmm. the uh, creators were familiar with because it was on TV, you know, when they were growing up. And, right. uh, and so I don't specifically know the reference, but I, I know that it is funny and I interpret it as funny. This is some, yeah, I can't remember what episode this came up in, but I, this is still one of the most interesting things about humor to me that something can be funny even if you don't get the joke. This was especially common. I remember a lot when I was a kid, but it still happens sometimes. Like they say an actor in a movie looks like somebody and Mm -hmm. then it's funny when you hear it, like it makes you laugh, but you actually don't know who that other person is. Right. (laughs) Just something about the delivery was funny. Yeah. All right, let's move on to another one. This one comes to us from Joe, another Joe. Uh, They write Thanks for the interesting podcast on Halos. I love seeing the evolution of Halos in art and the way they demonstrate advancement in the understanding of light and how to depict it. Uh, Your discussion of Halos in movies focused on more serious angel depictions, Uh, but I had a faint sense memory of Halos in Lighter Fair. I started by looking at the recent and magnificent Good Omens, but these business-like angels lack true Halos. Although um, Aziraphale is occasionally shot to have an apparent halo for comedic effects, so like lighting effects, and often wears white hats with uh, a golden band. The angel Uriel also has a gold motif on his face, but it's not really a halo, and they are the, uh, and they are the only angel so decorated. Oh, yeah. And I, it, so um, Joe attached a few pictures for us to look at. And in the case of this character, Aziraphale, I haven't seen this show, so I don't know who these characters are. But uh, yeah, shows that this character is often backlit and he has some like wispy white sideburns so that they very much catch the glow of the lighting from behind. This is the character played by Michael Sheen, the, the always excellent Michael Sheen. Mm. I think I watched the first episode of this and it, it is quite good, but for some reason I didn't keep going with it. It's too much to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I generally love anything uh, um, Terry Pratchett, uh, any, anything that his uh, his creativity was involved in. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, but anyway, the, the, the joke continues here. Then I remembered the charming, if dated film, Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> which, this is good because my mind did not immediately go here. Yeah. Um, Joe writes, the film has pure archetype angels, robes, sandals, wings, and shimmering golden hoops about their heads. So there you have it, halos in cinema. Uh, Joe included a link here for uh, to a video. It's the scene in Angels in the Outfield. I haven't seen this movie since I was a kid, but I remember it very vividly. I think as a kid, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. Am I wrong about that? Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Like There's a scene where one of the characters like catches a fly ball. the The plot of Angels in the Outfield is that there is a professional baseball team that's extremely bad, and a kid makes a wish to heaven that they'll, I guess, that they could win, win, or that they win the World Series or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the angels come down and they're like, "Yep, we will answer your prayers," which seems a, a, a just an utter abuse of supernatural powers. Oh wait. I don't think I, you know, when they, when I read the title, I was confusing this with the, um, what was it? Uh, if you build it, they will come movie. Oh, you're thinking field of dreams, field of dreams. Yeah. I had, I had the two confused. I was thinking this must be the same film, but it's not. I thought you were maybe saying you were, you were confusing it with Airbud. No, <laughs> that'd be a good no. crossover. <laughs> what if it's Airbud is a dog, is a dog, uh, mm. but all dogs go to heaven when they die. He comes back as an angel, an angel dog. 
and help. I mean, these can all films can just be made into one, and uh, they're probably they'll probably be better for it. I was trying to think who plays the angels in Angels in the Outfield. I was thinking, can I mentally cast this movie? Like, I remember one is Christopher Lloyd, but beyond that, could I round out the cast of Extra Angels from my imagination alone without looking it up? I was thinking, was John Lovitz in there? Was there a John Lovitz Seraphim? That seems right. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm looking at the cast now, and um, uh, it's confusing because there's the team is the angels as well, so it's mm-hmm. hard to just really spot angels really quickly. Um, Was Tony Danza an angel? He's the angels pitcher, so I guess he's like a oh. real. I don't know if he's an actual heavenly. He's being. a human. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, the only the only one that I'm noticing here that is definitely an angel is is I guess Christopher Lloyd. He doesn't turn anyone into a pillar of salt in this or anything, does he? <laughs> Christopher Lloyd as the angel of death. <laughs> oh, wait, wait. There's more, though. Uh, the, there's more on this email from Joe. They continue. I also appreciated the story of Humbaba you shared in one episode. Your discussion of the seven R's reminded me of a modern story that may have borrowed this archetype. Marvel's Thanos and his Infinity Stones. Powers which, when possessed, render invulnerability an enemy of the forces of good until the hero seizes them by trickery and they are once again scattered across the cosmos. Also worth mentioning the frequency with which uh, areolas are part of the design of superheroes, our modern mythic figures. Thanks, as always, for enlightening and engaging content. Joe. Uh, I have not seen the movies that have Thanos in them. Rob, what do you know about Infinity Stones? Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I've I've seen those two movies. And yeah, Thanos mm-hmm. uh, Thanos has a, a certain, uh, you know, ancient Sumerian uh, aura to him, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, yeah, I think I think there's a strong comparison to be made there. It wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if that was a, an intentional comparison, at least on the, the part of the uh, the the original architects of this character in the comic books. Oh, interesting. So, is there a moment where, like, uh, like, like Iron Man and Black Panther, and they all have to go into the Cedar Forest, or is it just? It, 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 well, yeah. As, now that you mentioned the showdown, the initial showdown with him, I think does take place in a forest. Um, mm. We're on the edge of a forest. You know, it, I think it takes place in um, in Wakanda, right? So, wow. If I'm remembering it correctly, I've, I've only seen it seen it the one time. Uh, but but yeah yeah uh, Humbaba Thanos there there may be something there I'm sure this has been excruciating for all the Marvel fans who have seen these movies a bunch of times and hear <laughs> just me talk about how I don't know anything about them but no there it, it makes me want to look for more angel uh, symbolism in these films because yeah you think of a character like Vision on the 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 really uh, interesting uh, WandaVision show um, there there are definitely angelic properties to him you know mm-hmm. so yeah makes sense. Okay, we got another email about angels and halos. This one comes from Hannah. She writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. Just sending a quick message responding to your call for halo representation in genre movies. Not sure exactly how genre one might consider a surreal musical drama, but in All That Jazz, 1979, the angel of death, played by Jessica Lange, wears a hat with a wide circular brim and a veil that is clearly supposed to evoke a halo in certain shots. See below. And Rob, I've attached a picture for you to look at. Mm, I believe she does remove it partway through, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Really great film, but pretty hard to watch, especially the parts with footage of real open heart surgery. Wow. I've never seen this one, though. I do love Jessica Lange. Uh, Hannah goes on to say, all the best and thanks as always for your awesome show, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen all that jazz either, but I've, I mean, I've long been familiar with it by reputation uh, being, Mm -hmm. you know, a Bob Fosse film and 
and uh, having having old Roy there uh, at the uh, at the lead. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's I don't know if I'll get around to seeing it in this lifetime, but um, <laughs> but I might. Certainly, I would say that it it do, it is the mark of a potentially weird film if it is not uh, a fantasy and an angel shows up. You know, oh yeah, like that that alone is enough to get me interested in it. Um, so uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah I'll, maybe I'll put it on the list. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from, I'm not sure who from, but uh, this is how it starts. Oh, this is from Robert. Oh, okay. That's what threw me off because I just glanced <laughs> at it and I saw a couple of So we had a Joe email and then we have a Robert email. Yeah. These are not from ourselves, though. We're not padding our own listener mail episode. Right. Um, this is from Robert. Hey, guys, I thought you might find this interesting. It doesn't explain halos in art, but it is about people glowing. There is a phenomenon called angels glow, noticed during a Tennessee Civil War battle, where some of the wounds begin to glow. The glowing ones tended to do better than the others. It was caused by a bioluminescent bacteria that produces an antibiotic compound. There is a Sawbones episode if you want to learn more uh, without having to read. (laughs) (laughs) Regards, Robert. I love not having to read. I actually, so I looked this up. I was inter- I I never come across this before. Um, though, uh, quick plug: I haven't listened to it in a long time. But Sawbones is a great show. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's like a comedy medical show that's like half uh, expert advice and and half jokes, and it's 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 fun. Um, but anyway, I, I looked up this phenomenon you're talking about, the idea of angels glow, and I did find it referenced in some papers. I'm not sure if this is if this has been like really confirmed as the explanation for these reports, but it does appear to be possible. It seems like uh, I think somehow around the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War, there were these reports about wounds glowing. And so I found at least one paper uh, published in PLOS One in 2015 by Geraldine Mully et al. called From Insect to Man, Photorhabdus Sheds Light on the Emergence of Human Pathogenicity. And Photorhabdus, I guess, is the name of the microbe in question here. But the authors write that discoveries about this raise, quote, the intriguing possibility that Photorhabdus skin lesions might actually glow in the dark if bacterial numbers were sufficient in a similar manner to the angel's glow phenomena experienced by wounded soldiers at the Battle of Shiloh during the American Civil War. So it looks like that that is a possibility. Do you think that the the blood of creatures like the predator, uh, that it glows perhaps because there are uh, phosphorescent bacteria in the blood? Amazing. Yes, possibly. Yes. I'm going to say yes. Okay. That's a, that's a endosymbiont of the predator, lives in the bloodstream, helps them – I don't know, do something, metabolism, and and that bacterium glows. Well, it would pay to have an excellent metabolism if you're going to be dropping in on into other uh, ecosystems and, you know, without really wearing much in the way of a suit and then engaging in like brutal, bloody combat with other organisms, getting their blood all over you and having wounds opening to this environment would make sense. Wait, what was the idea we just talked about in a recent? Oh, it was the one where the the predators, they're attracted to the heat of what they think is a is a war going on, but then it turns out it's Bitcoin mining. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Or people just gaming really hard. All right, here's a one last bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Jeffrey. Hello, gents. I love the show and just thought I would add a modern twist to the Santo episode of Weird House Cinema. As I recall, there was a luchador character, the Silver Angel, in the FX series The Strain. The character played a retired 
uh, lucha movie star who battled vampires using brass knuckles made of silver and in the form of crosses. In the show, the luchador is working in an Indian restaurant until a real vampire outbreak drives him to come out of retirement. Vampire WrestleMania just wanted to add a little trivia to a great episode. Thanks uh, for all you do. Haven't you watched the show? Uh, we watched a bunch of it, and then we ended up, we kind of stopped around the time when this character was first introduced. Hmm. So uh, I, I, I've been wanting to pick it back up again. I was enjoying it. I don't know why we stopped watching it. Um, but yeah, giving Guillermo del Toro, weird, cool vampires, giant vampires. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what my, my issue was. Maybe it was, it might have been one of these things where, as with some of these modern shows, it can be really interesting but if you if you drag it out for too many episodes, mm. um, you know you you're gonna end up having some episodes that are less uh, enthralling. I don't know, but uh, but I I enjoyed a lot of what I saw in it, and every now and then I'm reminded that it's all out there and that they finished the series, and I should pick it up because I think also the the final season or so gets like really post apocalyptic, and uh, I've been curious to check that out, but just haven't gotten around to it. I mean, I could really appreciate some some newer supernatural wrestling movies, but I, I think there are a few caveats there. First of all, I'd be afraid that if somebody made movies like Santo and the Treasure of Dracula today, they would be too juicy. They would be too tongue-in-cheek, too much mm-hmm. winking, and and not played straight enough to be as good as that movie is. And then second, I think, we, is is there a star with comparable charisma to Santo today? I don't know. Um, not that I, I mean, yeah, you could have the rock battle vampires, but it would be the rock battling vampires and you can, you can kind of imagine how that would go. It would, yeah. um, I, I mean, I guess some people would love it, but, um, it's not what I'm looking for. I don't think they would do it straightforward enough to be as funny as it needs to be. They would try to make it funny and thus make it less funny. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, um, it, it would be difficult, but it's possible. All, all things are possible. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, close the, uh, the, the the mailbox here. But we'll be back next Monday with more listener mail. You know, we'll catch up on some of the listener mail we weren't able to get to in this one and address new listener mail. So, hey, write in. Uh, respond to what we talked about here in this episode. Respond to recent episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in Weird House Cinema, The Artifact. Everything's on the table. Uh, give us your take on all of these topics, and uh, we can recommend topics for the future. And uh, when you do write in, just uh, make sure you in- include your, you know, how you want to be referred to on the podcast. So if you if you ne- think you need to give us some help with the pronunciation of your name, uh, <laughs> let us know that. Uh, uh, let us know what your pronouns are as well. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. Oh yeah, it has come up several times. I should just say where where you have written in and given us two different names on on the email. One at the yes. top, and or it says like in one in the from field and one in the sign off line. I think we usually try to go by the sign off line, but to to reduce confusion, please uh, if you have a, a preferred way to refer to you, whether that's name, pronunciation, or pronouns, all that is helpful. So yes, please. Yeah, it doesn't even need to be a. Uh, you know your real name, or you know it can be a it can be a pseudonym. It can be a different pseudonym each time. Yeah, everything's <laughs> on the table. 
In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or Weird House Cinema or The Artifact, you'll find all of it in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And you will find that wherever you get your podcasts. And if the platform allows you to do so, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.